So, uh, David came up to me tonight and said, uh, just so you know, when we go to Arlington, it's going to be yours to explain to the youth the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's a white topic. <laughs> um, and I said, well, that's good. I said, I've already got the notes. I think there's about 65 pages worth of outline notes on that topic. I'm not sure we can get it done in one night or two while we're there. But, you know, as we get ready to consider here chapter 20 and 21 of the Revelation, one of the things that I found particularly fascinating about the current crop of youth that we have is the fascination that they have with temple worship, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the manner of propitiation, and the way that those things function together to bring about um, not only the testimony of, of Christ and the cross, but the consummation of the age where that testimony is fulfilled. And I, um, I had a particular fascination with that myself, and I didn't understand why. This was well before kind of the whole light bulb coming on with Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10 for me. But as, as a young man, um, after the call to the ministry at 15, I was particularly fascinated with temple worship and the Ark of the Covenant to the point that in an Old Testament survey class, Rock, a survey class, right? Like the one that everybody has to take at OBU. Um, you're supposed to write like, I don't know, a couple thousand words, like five or six pages on uh, you know Old Testament research topic, and I think I one of the few times I overachieved in college, Damon. I think I delivered about thirty pages on the mercy seat um, because it was just a, such a fascinating topic to me. And we had a I spoke about this when we um, talked about the debrief after camp this year. You know, it's kind of a different youth group. Man, we got a bunch of girls and and uh, and, and not kind of the balanced crew that maybe we've had in the past quite as much and, and really had an opportunity to connect with them at camp over this very topic. And man, they were locked in, just fascinated with it. And, and it's really exciting stuff. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I just... Um, does that relate directly to what we're going to study tonight? No, it doesn't relate, relate directly to what we're going to study tonight. But it's close and... You know, I think it's very encouraging and it's good to kind of, man, see what the Lord's doing in the different areas um, of the ministry here at Mount Zion. It's, it's cool those kids are hooked up on that. I guess I will study up on Daniel. It's been a while. Make sure my knives are sharp. That kind of stuff gets rusty pretty quick if they set the drawer. Alright, continuing tonight out of the Revelation in chapter 20 and then kind of moving on into 21, considering that which is new, we have looked at over the last several weeks in chapter 20 at the second coming of Christ, the day in which He splits the eastern sky and He comes for the salvation of His people, for those who have been waiting on Him, a day when the, the Christians that are left alive, and they're a pretty small fraction of the population at this point are miraculously caught up to meet the Lord in the air where they stand before the mercy seat of Christ and 
Um, everything that is of this world that is wood and hay and stubble is burned away, leaving only the foundation which is Christ and that which was built on it by the Holy Spirit of gold, silver, and precious stones remaining. And they return triumphantly uh, with Christ to see Him destroy His enemies and to tread the winepress of the wrath of God outside the city of Jerusalem to, to cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the fiery furnace and to lock Satan up in the pit for a thousand years that he may reign in Jerusalem while vindicating his righteous choice in the gospel of choosing the people of Israel. And this is a day when all of those that are the blood descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when the pride of Jacob is broken and they look upon the one whom they pierced and in that moment they are provoked to jealousy and they say something along the lines of that is supposed to be my promise, that is supposed to be my my God, that is supposed to be my Savior, that is supposed to be my Messiah, that is supposed to be my Messiah. And in that moment of jealousy, the Lord breaks open a fountain of grace and pleads for mercy for them. And He gives them a new heart and He replaces a heart of stone that is in them with a, a heart of flesh, the heart that is after His own heart. And in that day, in a moment, an entire nation, all of living Israel is saved. All the things that we see in Amos, the fixation of his eye upon them for what is evil and not which is what is good is shattered when the basis of that oath fails. When the pride of Jacob that that oath is built on collapses, so with it collapses his wrath toward them and is replaced with mercy and grace and and He uses the nations of the world to, to bring back His people to Jerusalem to, to populate the city so that it will no longer be said, as we looked at two weeks ago, the Lord who led us forth out of Egypt, but instead the Lord that returned us to Jerusalem. And, and the Ark of the Covenant will no more be in its midst. It won't even be missed, He tells Jeremiah. Because you don't miss the footstool of God when the throne of God sets upon the temple mound and fulfills His promise. He reigns for a thousand years, subjugating sin with an iron scepter. His glorified saints functioning in the administration of His kingdom Born again, Israel no longer hindered by the temptation of Satan who has been locked away, but instead bolstered by Christ Himself in their midst live a sinless, perfect existence. Just to show both man and angel alike that the problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem with the law was the creature. God is vindicated. Which is the exact phrase he uses when he speaks to his prophets about it, which is just a fancy way of saying, see, I told you so. You could have trusted me from the beginning. This is the way it would always be. And so, chapter 20, verse 7. This is when the thousand years were ended. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. 
Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I want you to consider just for a moment because if I can, if I can digress just for, just, you know, I don't know. The 70, the 70 heptats of Daniel caught me. That didn't catch me off guard, but it definitely piqued my interest. You know, if you consider the nature of prophetic redemptive history, when I say prophetic redemptive history, I guess that's not even probably the right way to say it. When you look at prophecy as it relates to kingdom consummation. And so, maybe here our focus is not on the particular salvation of an individual like me or you, even though certainly the bulk of kingdom consummation would cover and consume all of that. But when we really talk about it from a from an overarching kind of macro kingdom perspective, Man, Scripture goes to a lot of trouble and spends a lot of bulk telling us what that's going to look like. Because at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is a king. And so kings have a kingdom. And kingdoms are defined by basically three things. You've got the king, you've got the subjects, and and you've got the territory. That's what defines the kingdom. You put those three things together and you have a kingdom. If you're missing any one of those parts, you don't. And so Scripture takes a lot of time speaking about the consummation of the kingdom that is yet to come. And so it starts all the way back here in Daniel. And we were sitting in the office. And so Buchanan walks in and drops this bomb on me and says, you're going to tell them all about it. I told them Pastor Brian knew all about it. And you'd take care of it then, so I don't have to take care of it today. Perfect. And then Moore says, well, I've been told that you can't explain it to a six-year-old. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so here's how you explain it to a six-year-old. God told Daniel that there were 70 groups of sevens that were left to the Jews to put an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. 490 years. And the countdown started the moment that Artaxerxes handed a letter to Nehemiah that gave him the authority to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the moment he did it, friends, I'm convinced it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We don't know that for sure out of the text. What we do know, it was in the month of Nisan, which is the month that Christ died. And I would bet everything I own that it happened on Passover at 3 p.m. Because what is told us is at the end of the 69th heptap, at the end of 483 years, it starts the day that he signs that decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And exactly 483 heptats later, exactly to the moment that it hit his hand. 
the Messiah would be cut off. And one seven remains. And that seven includes everything in the last half of Daniel and the first three quarters of the book of Revelation. Scripture goes to a lot of effort to speak about the details of the consummation of the kingdom and the way that's going to unfold. And man, it's a fight. I mean, we've spent years now looking in the Revelation about the nature of the Antichrist rebellion. How he rises to power through flattery and subterfuge and having come to power becomes the single most violent man that has ever walked the face of the earth. He is the personification of evil. He is the man of lawlessness. He is lawlessness personified. False resurrections. False holy spirits. False prophets. And I think, once again, the vindication of God in the thousand year reign is not that the law was failed, it's the creation failed the law. His law is perfect. The creature failed the law. Not the other way around. It wasn't that he expected too much. It wasn't that it was an impossible situation. The thousand years proves it wasn't an impossible situation. It works great. I think because of... And, and you understand... Well, and I've just totally jumped the nuts. Okay? You understand, this is the... This is the result of God's grace functioning. One, at least one of the reasons that there is so much that must be accomplished in order for the consummation of the kingdom is because God appoints everything in its season. And if Christ just showed up and consummated the kingdom, there would have been no time for me and you to be born, much less to be born again. There is at least some complexity here that is built in for the purpose of creating an age of grace. Alright guys, we're going to consummate the kingdom, but there's stuff that's got to happen. And we can give you a list. The Jews have to be in in the land, but not only in the land, they also have to have control of the temple mound. They have to be able to reconstruct the temple. They have to have uh, some version of temple sacrifice going on. There has to be the rising of the man of lawlessness by which they can sign a contract with for the dividing of the land. There's got to be this, and there's got to be this, and there's got to be this, there's got to be this, there's got to be this. So many of these things were such monumental tasks that the... Theology, and if you look back, one of the fascinating things for me is the theology of the eschatology of the mid 1800s. Anytime God gets ready to do something, what you see is, generally speaking, his men sharpening their pencils. And so if you look at the theology of the mid 1800s through the early 1900s, you see a focus on eschatology, particularly as it pertains to the establishment of the state of Israel that had not existed to that intense degree in the entire existence of the church since 70 AD when the Romans burned the temple. And there was this huge emphasis. One of the greatest that came out of that was Tregellis. 
there was this huge emphasis on figuring out the place of national Israel. Now, look, we look back at that mid-1800s and we say that was a long time ago. Guys, when you look when you look at the life of a theologian, how long it takes for a guy... I mean, this stuff takes a lifetime for guys to work out. You only have a couple of generations from when that really started in earnest in the 1800s. And Satan had his part in it too, man. He was trying to gum up the works as, good, as best he could because that's exactly when Darby and what would become dispensationalism rose its ugly head. Man, it was just a couple of generations until you see the reestablishment of the state in the 1940s. He was getting them ready for what was coming. There was an understanding that was being honed and developed from the mid-1850s all the way through to the 1940s so that when that thing came onto the scene, they would go, oh, and there were guys that thought, dude, we are going to see the return of Christ in our lifetime. And they had good reason to believe that. Because here was this thing that was required that had not existed in nearly 2,000 years and all of a sudden it just springs onto the scene and it comes out of nowhere. Great travail and great difficulty. I mean, the Scripture talks about it like a woman being in birth to bring this thing forth. Okay. But the problem with the law was not that the law failed the creature. It was the creature failed the law. So you can take the good things of God and in the flesh misinterpret, misunderstand, and misapply them. And so, because there has been so much history and so much travail and, and so much striving to bring forth the things that will result in the consummation of the kingdom, I mean, good grief, Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be? concerning these things, but those that hasten the day of His coming. There's been so much travail and so much striving and so much battle and so much fight. I think that if we're not careful, what we will do as the creature is think that that extended struggle is necessary in order for God to win. And it's not. I'm convinced that extended struggle is there to provide the literal ticking clock of grace. That extended struggle is there so that men and women and boys and girls, those who have been ordained as His elect, can be born and can receive the gift of faith and believe and testify to His goodness. Because when He lets Him out, do you notice... Okay, here's Christ. He splits the eastern sky. Boom. He shows up. He, 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 he raptures His people, not before raising the dead in Christ. Right? And that whole first couple of verses of chapter 20 there kind of flushes your pre-tribulational rapture right down the proverbial theological toilet. I mean, that's, that deal's over. And so he, 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 he raises the dead in Christ. He raptures those that are left. The judgment seat of Christ occurs and he, he glorifies them and he saves his people. And he, what's the first thing he does? Man, he takes the Antichrist and the false prophet and chunks them right to the lake of fire. But not Satan. No. We're going to keep you in the back pocket for just a little bit longer. So into the pit you go for a thousand years. 
which I don't know if that's hard time for a guardian cherub or not. I'm sure it's not pleasant. And then he turns around and lets him out. And guys, the only thing that I can figure is that he lets him out and he does this in order to make a point. Two points made. The fragility of the fallen children of Adam. After a thousand years of seeing Jesus Christ Himself sit on the throne in Jerusalem, the definition of all that is good, they are immediately deceived. They're immediately deceived. Their rebellious hearts, man, you want to talk about total depravity? Their rebellious hearts are shown. And the first thing they do is start sharpening their spears. Let's overthrow him. Lawlessness in full effect. Same thing that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. The same thing that happened a thousand years before during the tribulation. Yet, you know what? If we get the image bearers, if we take the fallen angels and we take the fallen men and we put them together, this time I think we got it. What's so different about this time is it is no longer an age of offered grace. There doesn't need to be a ticking clock. The elect have been justified. They were foreknown. They were predestined. They were called. They were justified. They were sanctified. They were glorified. It has been complete and it is finished. The clock doesn't need to tick. And what God demonstrates is it never needed to kick in order for Him to win. The reason He allowed it to tick was so that you could be saved. And He consumes them in a moment. No display. No vindication. No nothing. Simply that the wages of sin is death. You rebels burn. And you, O guardian cherub, straight to the lake of fire. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. He never needed time. He makes time. He makes time for His people. He doesn't need time. He's eternal. It's a construct. Just like depth and height. They marched over the broad plain of earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city that fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm thinking that once you get to this point, a thousand years in a bottomless pit looks more like county than like hard time. In a moment... And does it all so that we can finally get to something that is absolutely and positively new. And this new thing 
is eternal. And it will never end. The old ends and the new begins when a white throne is set in heaven.